Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. Before we start this week's show, we want to tell you about a fun thing we're doing that you can join. It is Archaeo Mad Libs, and we're going to do this as hopefully an ongoing series starting on Saturday, May 2nd, the year 2020 at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. CE. Yes, 2020 CE. Thank you so much. 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, which is 5 p.m. on the West Coast. And all you need to do to join in is to navigate your browser to twitch.tv slash the dirt podcast. Yeah. So in case you, like I, forgot, Mad Libs, which is also probably copyrighted. Oops, Oops sorry. Fair use. Is a game where you take a short story or paragraph and you take out a bunch of the key nouns, verbs, and adjectives. Then you get lists of those same parts of speech from other players who have no idea what the story is. That's why it's fun and mad. (laughs) And substitute their words for the originals. So then you read the result out loud and it's usually very silly and very fun. And that's what we're going to do, only with a distinctly archaeological flavor Mm. and live on the Internet. So come play. But before they come and play with us live on the Internet, what do they do, Anna? You can go to our pages on Facebook or Twitter to see the first of our Mad Lib word lists. It's also on Instagram. And then you can see what the sequence of nouns, verbs, and adjectives, etc. are. And you can send in your list of word submissions. Keep it G-rated, please. We want to include the kiddos on this one. To thedirtpodcast at gmail.com with the word Mad Libs. I guess that's two words. In the subject line. We will take those submissions and choose a few, and you can join us on Twitch on May 2nd at 8 p.m. Eastern as we read some selected submissions and giggle a whole bunch. So oh, A lot of giggling, yeah. Yeah, it should be fun, and we want to start doing this more with um, Twitch streams and live events that include our listeners so that you guys can come and interact with us and just sort of hang out for a little bit if you're feeling lonely or if you want to see and interact with our faces, if that's not weird for you to see the faces that go along with the voices. <laughs> so I think that'll be a lot of fun, and we hope you come join us. Yeah. All right. On with the show. All right, well, let's, let's do our show now. Okay. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we venture into the caves and corners of myth and legend to bring you stories of legendary beasts who seem to pop up in lots of different cultures. So I'll be honest, uh, I got the idea that I wanted to talk about dragons at 2 a.m. one night slash morning because sleep these days is not often my friend. And then I ran it by Amber, who was like, oh, cool, etiologies. And then I was like, well, that sounds a lot more intellectual than woo, dragons. So etiologies it is. And Amber I, I was and I trying may to give or may you, not have. I was trying to give you an excuse to talk about dragons, which yeah, don't exist I mean, and aren't humans. Komodo dragons. <laughs> um. No, so we both sort of ran with etiologies in a different way, I think. But no matter what, this I think this is going to be an interesting one. So yeah. in any case, etiologies, it is. And an etiology is a way of explaining how or why things happen, often drawing on a culture's existing cosmology or mythology. So, for example, pre-meteorological science, if someone asked, why do thunder and lightning happen? It could be explained by, for example, the Greek god Hephaestus forging Zeus's lightning bolts up on Mount Olympus, or Zeus getting angry for any of a zillion reasons and throwing said bolts at the earth, or in baby me's case it's the clouds bumping into each other in the sky and going oh excuse me oh excuse me because (laughs) apparently clouds are first of all from the midwest (laughs) but that is the story that my dad told me when i was little and scared of the big noise and he just went oh it's just the clouds saying oh excuse me oh i'm gonna do that with calypso now now when it's thunder i'll say they're just saying excuse excuse please excuse oh (laughs) very cute Well, now that we've sorted out thunder, um, (laughs) 
when I think etiologies, I think of like the how did humans get here? Why do people suffer? Those big unanswerable questions that for which people come up with etiologies. And one of those yes. big, pesky, unanswerable etiology inspiring questions is how are we here? Or why are we here? Which is kind of two questions, but both of yeah. them lead us to creation myths. Mm-hmm. And so there are a few themes that are common to creation myths sort of all over through time and space. Um, and, and this is just so, a, a selection. There are more than yeah. this. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, because just as there are as many ways to be a human as there are humans, there are as many ways to describe and conceptualize the world around you as there are places in which you can experience the world. How about so, that? <laughs> yeah, we're going to we're going to talk about one, two, three, four ish, like four ish big themes that come up in creation myths. Um, the first one is creation as procreation or world parents. There are two types of world parent myths, both describing a separation or a splitting of a primeval entity, creating the world parent, being the world parent or creating the world parents. One form describes the primeval state as an eternal union of two parents, and the creation takes place when the two are pulled apart. The two parents are commonly identified as sky, which is often male, and earth, which is often female. It's like the, the Egyptian second, one, right? Geb and Newt. Newt Except is... Newt, Newt is the sky, and that's female. Newt is, yeah. So yeah. it's backwards, but, but that's the way the Egyptian one goes, yeah. Yeah, there's a, usually a sense of duality there. Mm-hmm. Um in the second form of world parent myth, creation itself springs from dismembered parts of the body of the primeval being. Often in these stories, the limbs, hair, blood, bones, or organs of the primeval being are somehow severed or sacrificed to transform into sky, earth, animal, or plant life, and other worldly features. Mm-hmm. An- another big theme is creation out of chaos. Blech. In creation from chaos myths initially there is nothing but a formless shapeless expanse in these stories the word chaos means disorder and in this formless expanse which is also sometimes called a void or an abyss uh, that contains the material with which the created world will be made chaos may be described as having the consistency of vapor or water it's dimensionless and sometimes it's salty or muddy Uh, These myths associate chaos with evil and oblivion in contrast to order being cosmos, which is the good. And just thinking about, first of all, thinking about chaos having a consistency makes me deeply uneasy. But also Mm. the idea of chaos being salty or muddy, sort of playing on sort of deep-seated human fears, like primeval brain fears, environments where you can't see and there is no order and everything is just sort of shapeless and formless. It's not, it's not a restful place. Yeah. I don't like it. I don't like it. Well, if, if you're thinking of it as the opposite of like being, it's a state of Mm -hmm. unbeing. So nothing would have true shape. So it works sort of metaphysically or like metaphorically too. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just it's a, a lot it's, for my brain to deal with. Yeah, it's it's intentionally hard to fathom. It is. Yeah, yeah um, it's galaxy brain. Yep. Yeah, Whoa. it is. Um, another one is uh, creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. And so ex nihilo creation is found in creation stories from ancient Egypt or the Rig Veda in South Asia and many um, animistic cultures in Africa, Asia, Oceania and the Americas. In most of these stories, the world is brought into being by speech, dream, breath, or pure thought of a creator, but creation ex nihilo may also take place through a creator's bodily secretions. So this is also kind of a creation myth in a lot of Western societies too, Mm -hmm. because in, because in the beginning, there was, there was nothing. There was there was a the void, word. and then there was mm-hmm. the word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yep. Uh, that's that also is a creation. That is a creation myth. Um, sure is. So, just gonna tuck that one back in there. <laughs> and um, another big theme is the 
Earth Diver. I like this one. In these stories, a supreme being usually sends an animal into the primal waters to find bits of sand or mud with which to build habitable land. Some scholars interpret these myths psychologically, while others interpret them cosmologically. In both cases, emphasis is placed on beginnings emanating from the depths. The pattern of distribution of these stories suggests they have a common origin in the eastern Asiatic coastal region, spreading as people migrated west into Siberia and east into the North American continent. Listeners, if you'd like to learn more about creation myths, hop on over to our show notes page, or if you're in the podcast app, just scroll down. Um, We have a link to an NPR interview from 2005 with David Leeming, um, author of the Oxford (laughs) Companion to World Mythology. Um, And in it, he discusses the role of myths and culture and the staggering variety of creation myths around the globe. Um, And in relation to the intelligent design debate, Leeming says the importance of myths is metaphorical and that they were not meant to be taken literally. I just thought I'd tuck that back in there, too. It's just it's a story. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's a way to it's like as I was saying, like it it's a way to fathom the unfathomable unfathomable yeah like it's a way to like try to wrap your your mind around something that is beyond understanding right yeah and the things that are beyond understanding shift through time so for example if you were someone just average person living maybe in the middle ages and a friend or family member or someone you knew got sick suddenly and died you may not understand that because you, you wouldn't have the knowledge necessarily of, of germ theory and the idea of tiny microscopic organisms living around you and causing you to get sick. So it would be something like, oh, um, you know, you got you got elf shot, you know, you got cursed by a fairy or a witch or you did something blasphemous and you got smited, smote, you God smote you. So, yeah. you know, it's our understanding of the natural world versus the supernatural world changes with the information that we have. And so we're in sort of a privileged position today because we have, you know, a lot of scientific knowledge and yet there is a lot we don't know. So these mythologies are still relevant. Yeah. All right. So let's take a very quick ad break. And then Amber, I'm going to tell you all about how dragons come from rainbows. Yay. (laughs) need to gain essential business skills to level up in your career then ucr university extensions professional certificate in heritage business management is the program for you join the first university of california online business program designed by and for cultural heritage professionals enroll early and save visit extension.ucr.edu slash apn today Okay, we're back. Amber, are you ready to chase that dragon? Yes. <laughs> okay. So I found an article. <laughs> this is one of those. So I read a book. <laughs> no. Um, so I found an article from 2000, which is not particularly current, but in the field of dragon studies. I'm not sure we need to exactly remain on the cutting edge. And this is from the journal Anthropos, and it is written by Robert Blust or Blust. I like Blust, so I'm going to do that. And I was doing research for the script, and so I was sort of collecting a bunch of articles and skimming them, and I was skimming the intro, and then I caught this line, quote, Put somewhat simplistically, the thesis of this paper is that dragons are the end point of a conceptual development which began with rainbows, hence, rainbow, arrow, dragon. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean... It had the quote and then directly below it just had the word rainbow and an arrow pointing to the word dragon. So at this point, listeners, much like me, you may be saying, tell me more, Robert. So I will continue. But be warned, because this article drove me a little bit bonkers. Just because, and I was telling this to Amber earlier, I forgot because usually what I read are very scientific articles. And I forgot that, that there was this whole other side of thinky thought articles that, well, we'll just get into it, huh? So, well, like quoting the, again. <laughs> hmm? Yes. Like more conjectural articles rather than. Even within um, conjectural articles, this, this one, <laughs> this one's something special. So 
Uh, far, uh, so I'm quoting from the article again. Quote, Far from being the product of a capricious imagination, the dragon was mentally constructed in many parts of the world as a byproduct of, one, meticulously accurate observations of weather phenomena, and two, an earnest but unsuccessful attempt to grasp the causality of natural events, particularly those relating to rainfall. Most sources that discuss the dragon as a universal cultural phenomenon report it in six relatively discrete geographical regions, and those regions are... Europe, the Near East, including Egypt, India, the Far East, Mesoamerica, and North America. So like most of the world. Uh, In areas one through five, so again, Europe, the Near East, India, the Far East, Mesoamerica, the dragon is a fully developed, highly elaborated motif in folklore, mythology, and in some cases, ritual. In North America, it is generally described as a vestigial phenomenon, the horned serpent, a dangerous guardian of springs and other watery realms. The preferred explanation for a globally distributed culture trait is convergence, or different people arriving at the same idea by coincidence. And so Bluest goes on to say, basically, dragon stories are complex and have a lot of unique elements that also occur in lots of different, seemingly unconnected places. And these are things like, and so he's got this whole table that maps out these traits and in which mythologies they occur. So I'm not going to go into a whole description of that table, but I've selected a couple of categories from it. So commonalities like dragons being guardians or having hordes, like Smaug in The Hobbit, Um, a giver or withholder of rain, capable of flight, causes floods, causes earthquakes, fearsome in appearance, often combining aspects of several animals, feathers, scales, mane, whiskers, etc. Connected with longevity or immortality uh, and fiery, fetid, or poisonous breath. And so briefly, Bluest suggests maybe cohesion isn't how this mythology arrived to be sort of commonplace in lots of places throughout the world. He goes on to say, Probably the most common explanation proffered for the agreement of draconic traits is diffusion. In this interpretation, expressed first and in its most extreme form by Smith in 1919, so again, keeping it current, the dragon was a creation of the Egyptian priesthood. From Egypt, it spread into the Near East, Europe, and India, and thence to China and ultimately Mesoamerica. This was conceived, right? He didn't treat us to an explanation. Yep, this is, this is what my brain was doing, too, as I was going through this article. He just, like, says stuff. This was conceived as a gradual process, mediated by trade-induced contacts. Yeah, that well-known trade route between China and Mesoamerica, which took many centuries. As a result, the first crude representations of the dragon as a horned serpent in the earliest Babylonian conception of Tiamat, the spirit of chaos in the primeval ocean, evolved over time into a much more elaborate iconography, particularly in China. All I know is that Tiamat is also a character in Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, Tiamat is one of the most overtapped <laughs> aspects of any ancient mythology. Like people who do like witchy stuff and like yep. chaos magic y stuff, they talk Call about they they call, they talk about these like figures from like Sumerian they call Sumerian religion or like oh. Babylonian religion and it is irritating to me because <laughs> in the one hand I want people to exercise their right to move through the cosmos however they feel is most appropriate but on the other hand. I have a very different relationship with these things and how they're represented and how they were understood in their original context. And it bums me out. And I need people to not talk about Tiamat so much. I need people to never talk about sacred geometry and these things that don't exist. (laughs) Okay. PSA from... (laughs) PSA from your... From your friendly friendly Former Near Eastern Studies scholar. Yeah. Well, okay. So this is about the time where I started to be done with this guy. Also, um, it gets more interesting, I think. Um, so he goes on to say, 
Although all later writers reject Smith's Egyptocentric theory of world civilizations, yep. his gen- yep, yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, that theory was circa 1919. So, you know, it's matured. His general proposal that the dragon motif was invented once and then borrowed over most of the globe has been endorsed in the literature until quite recently. And then he goes on to provide no other better input. <laughs> oh, yeah, and the, then goes on to like better. <laughs> yeah. Better possibilities. Well, he just goes on to other possibilities. Like oh. in none of he, it, this article is just a list of stuff without any real analysis. And uh, yeah, it bummed me out. So Wait, here are some other person? options. His name is, is Robert Bluest. He wrote the article, Why Dragons Are Bisexual. Oh, there's a lot about dragon sexuality in this article. Um. Yep. So he goes on to present some other options without really discussing them. But he suggests dragons are inspired by real animals, which... You're getting there. Yeah. I mean, first of all, real things that sort of resemble dragons are real in in the real world like crocodiles and lizards and they can be scary enough and it's pretty easy to imagine someone drawing from that scary imagery or spinning a yarn to try and scare you know a friend or explain something to a kid who's asking questions and it's also possible that folks might find skulls and skeletons of existing or extinct animals and imagine what they would have looked like when alive and so pulled from that to try and um you know, explain things or to flesh out mythological characters. Um, he kind of skims over that, though, the, that sort of practical explanation. And he goes on to ponder several more key questions without answering them, like why dragons guard springs and live in caves. These are so these are section titles in the paper. And so he has a section title and then lists instances throughout the world of dragons doing these things and then doesn't explain anything. He's just like, why dragons guard springs and live in caves? Here are examples from the literature of them doing that. The end. Why dragons are chimerical. Quote, as is commonly recognized, a dragon is basically a snake. End quote. (laughs) (laughs) Another quote. In fact, the dragon arguably embodies mankind's earliest known use of analogy in the following form. Rain is to sun as snake is to X. No explanation. Uh, Why dragons are sexually ambivalent. Again, this is unanswered. It's just a summary of instances in which dragons are either sexy or unsexy. He links dragons and menstruation and lists some instances where that comes up. So basically... Don't approach a dragon if you are celebrating your menses. Why dragons exhale fire? Again, zero explanation. He just says that dragons are typically fiery and or stinky. Why dragons guard treasures? Literally, quoting from the article, because there is gold at the end of the rainbow. End of section. And then finally, there are more sections, but I got fed up. But finally, why dragons encircle the world? which is a cross between where's the other half of that rainbow, as in he's still going with dragons come from rainbows. So like when you see half of a rainbow, surely ancient man was bound to wonder, where's the other half go? And also, they beg. So having answered none of these questions and simply having provided a survey of dragons meaning different things and looking different across cultural mythologies, Bluest concludes, therefore, rainbows led to dragons. And I was really mad about it. So this guy's a linguist. Oh, that makes so much sense. I looked him up and he's like an actual linguist. He's a professor in the Department of Linguistics at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Oh, I did know that. I did know he was based in Hawaii. And he focuses on Austronesian languages spoken in locations such as Sarawak, Papua New Guinea, and Taiwan. So he's like... Well, you should stick to that and not. And so this is the last line of his Wikipedia entry. Yes. Blist also has an abiding interest in both linguistic and cultural aspects of rainbows and dragons. Indeed, he does. And is unable to satisfactorily explain the link between the two. Because he just he just says stuff. 
And then he's like, well, moving on. <laughs> now that I think we've dunked on this article enough. It does bring up some thinking points that likely apply to lots of universal mythological creatures. And I'm using universal in heavy quotes because you can't call anything cultural universal, but there are types or you know categories of creature or types of myth, like a creation myth, that do show up in lots and lots of different places. So some things to think about. First of all, people tell stories and make things up. Humans have active imaginations. Yeah, two, they do, as we just mm, saw. As we just saw, active explanations and and just where oh, I'm so bummed about that article. Um, people want to explain things that they don't understand. Our brains are sort of hardwired to be problem solvers, and if we see something we can't understand, our brains work away at it. And number three, people draw on the things they see in the natural world, including living animals and fossils that they might come across, and so. This brought me back to something I remember hearing or reading when I was a kid, and it's something that always fascinated me. And so I have a note to myself in brackets saying, is this a myth? Look this up. And then I looked it up. So here is a brief excerpt from National Geographic in 2003. And this is that idea that the myth of the Cyclops, the one-eyed giant, comes from people seeing an elephant skull and trying to figure out what kind of creature it belonged to. Well, there was a whole like... Um tribe of them they lived on an island in the aegean yes the cyclops that you cyclopses cyclopes the guy that odysseus meets um yeah. he, he had a is, he had a name and i forget he had yeah he has a name that escapes me right now but um he was a cyclops so it's not as though it's not like there's the not Minotaur just one. where there was yeah. like a dude yeah that's one. um no this the, is a, so, a yeah. group of them yeah So just think about that as Anna continues talking. From National Geographic, quote, the tusk, several teeth and some bones of a Dinotherium giganteum, which loosely translated means really huge, terrible beast, have been found on the Greek island of Crete. A distant relative to today's elephants, the giant mammal stood 15 feet tall at the shoulder and had tusks that were four and a half feet long. That's like almost as big as my mom. It was one of the largest mammals ever to walk the face of the earth. A geologist with the University of Crete's Natural History Museum said, quote, this is the first finding in Crete and the South Aegean in general. It is also the first time that we found a whole tusk of the animal in Greece. We haven't dated the fossils yet, but the sediment where we found them is eight to nine million years in age. So these fossils were definitely around in sort of the the Peloponnese and the area of Greece well before there were people. And Dinotherium and and other elephants, if you look up, if you Google elephant skull, you can see this Um, because elephants have that magnificent trunk that they have. If you just look at their skull, there's no bones in the trunk. It's not like a tail or a neck. It's just muscle. And so there is a big hole in the center of the skull where the trunk would go. But if you don't know that, if you don't can't look at a skull and if you've never seen an elephant before, if you can't visualize what that might be look like once it has, you know, the meat parts on it, um, you might think that that would be an eye hole, an eye socket. And if Dinotherium had these massive, fearsome tusks, it would be, I think, very easy to conjure a pretty terrifying creature out of that. So this establishes that there were these giant elephant-like creatures on Crete and presumably around in the Aegean. Um, So yeah, there's some basis to that story that I heard one time when I was a kid. (laughs) yeah yeah now i know what you're saying after we spent all that time talking about dragons you're saying dragons aren't real what about things that are real they're rainbows amber so quit whining and let's talk about something real and something that i can guarantee has happened to you or someone you know menstruation It's something common to all human populations. And since it only happens to roughly half the population for 30 to 40 years of their lives and involves blood it's kind of a big deal. And people have tried to explain why it happens and what its whole deal is. So <laughs> talking like, about like, what is that? Why? What, what is up with that? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so menstruation itself is not a cultural phenomenon, but nope. <laughs> sort of um, etiologies for why it, it, why it happens um, and sort of its, its value. Um, they differ wildly across 
time and space. And um, I can't possibly get into all of them, but I'm going to give you a little little roundup here. Biblical narrative. So the so the Hebrew Bible, and then by extension Christianity, and the new by one. a little bit more extension Islam. The, that creation story. Um, a narrative says that the first woman, Eve, in the Bible, uh, Hawa is the wife of Adam in the Quran. But Eve was convinced by Satan in the form of a sneaky snake to eat from the tree that they were explicitly told not to. And she, in turn, convinced the first man, Adam, to eat it too. So this constituted the original sin, and that's what got them evicted from the Garden of Eden. And as further punishment for being the one who gave in to the sneaky snake and took the apple and ate it and made Adam eat it. Eve was afflicted with the pain of menstruation and childbirth, and all subsequent women would have to put up with it too. And that's sort of the the underpinnings of explaining why it's it's unclean or bad or like those sorts of things that come up elsewhere. In Zoroastrian narratives, the condition of menstruation comes to humans by way of Jeh, a sort of deity demoness, kind of like my girl Lamashtu, how she's hey. a she's like a deity figure. But she's kind of a demoness because she's on the the, the bad top, bad team. Jay represents sexual promiscuity, and her epithet is the whore, which is p rude in my view. Um, but I don't know. It depends maybe, how you view. Maybe she's that reclaimed profession. it. Yeah. Well, no, I I think the term. So it is it is very much used as a pejorative in this sense. So she's she is bad. So Jay is considered to be the one that caused Ahura Mazda the supreme deity the yep. most grief so <laughs> great okay um, so um in the zoroastrian creation narrative that was written um that was sort of codified and written in the 10th 11th century ce the um Bundaheshne, the representation of destruction and ill will so that same kind of idea of the spirit of badness ahriman lodged an attack on ahura mazda who is big g um, so Ahura Mazda repels him and puts him to sleep for 3,000 years, during which time none of Ahriman's evil cronies could wake him up. They're like, oh, come on, boss. And like, he can't, he won't wake up. I don't know if he's like asleep or depressed or what. Um, until Jeff finally managed to get him awake by using her skills and promising to let righteous humankind and Ahura Mazda really have it. And he was like, oh, yeah, tell me that again. And she did. So on the second time, into he, it. Was, he was so pleased with her that he kissed her. Wink. Yep. Wink. Yeah. So mm -hmm. with that kiss, he caused menstruation in Jeh, who, who then passed it along to humankind. So it's so he did it. Ahriman did it, caused it. But she was sort but of the vehicle she's for it. the carrier. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, which is really interesting to me. Okay. That's like a, like there's, there's more like complexity to that. Yes. To, to that, that myth. But it's not all bad everywhere though. Um, among the Maori, uh, menstruation is one of the circumstances that increases one's tapu. And tapu is this spiritual attribute that's unique to each person and is derived directly from the gods. And tapu is complex and important. And I'm not about to suggest that I understand it at all. Um, yep. <laughs> but when something or someone is very tapu, efforts should be taken to protect them from themselves and their, I, th I think, from themselves and from their own power, it seems to me, and okay. also to protect others. Um, um, and okay. this, I think it was in 2010 that there was a, uh, there was an exhibit at the um, Te Papa yes. Museum. I remember and, we talked about this. Yeah. And people like freaked out <laughs> where they're like. Because it was artifacts that were very um, rich in Tapu. Yeah. And so they, they put a, uh, they, they put up a, they were doing a sort of behind the scenes tour for folks. Um, it wasn't for the general public, but they said if any women are like if women are. Um, was it pregnant or menstruating? I it think. was pregnant or menstruating. Um, they are like like super tapu and um, FYI. It, 
it may like they may want to consider not participating in this because because like they are too powerful in this sense. And so a bunch of people were like, this is PC gone mad. And like, like, that's not what this is about. Like, and it's my business, not yours. And like a lot of people who like didn't get it. And then they like asked some folks that like knew what was up and they were like, yeah, this isn't mandatory but also it's about you yeah it's sort of like like you are the thing that is too powerful like so they're just sort of like we're just like trying to be cool can everyone be cool but calm um, down so menstruating people aren't supposed to enter water or ride horses and this makes sense especially because like sharks are attracted to blood and horses get freaked out by it which i Horses, and in both my of view, those get animals. freaked out by everything. Well, yeah, and and both of those animals have very uh, high sensory perception, right? So they like yeah. even so they'd be able to to smell it or sense it way more than yeah than a person and so would. When both of those animals are able to like really wreck you, yeah, if you upset them, yeah, um, if you're riding a shark and it smells blood, oh my goodness. So part of what makes menstruation so taboo, according according to a 1904 ethnographic account that is mm. a very 1904, mm. it's from mm. the, yeah, so it's from like the uh, Royal Geographical Society of New Zealand. Um, but it's really cool right. because it is like ethnographic accounts. It's this. It is white, very cool. I just always get, you know. Oh, there's some, there's some stuff in it that sucks. But um, this part, it's very interesting because part of what makes it so tapu is because of what's actually in the menstrual blood, which is known as the paheke. These proceedings say, quote, <laughs> there was and still is a certain amount of tapu placed on a menstruating woman. The discharge is viewed as a sort of is viewed as a sort of human embryo, an immature or undeveloped human being, hence the tapu. An aged native said, quote, <laughs> The paheke is a kind of human being because if the discharge ceases, then it grows into a person. That is, when the paheke ceases to come away, then it assumes human form and grows into a man, end quote. Which, that's neat. Is not, that's, not what it is. I know. So it's, it's a, that's a really cool example of, I don't know how to say this. I, I don't want to come off as patronizing because that's not at all what I mean. But it's a really cool example of how that process is understood. Yeah, you can like folk with you can figure it out without like contemporary gynecology. Yeah, yeah, like you they, can see the figured, correlation. Yeah, they figured out what it is. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, and that's also part of what makes it so tapu is because it is also person. Is. Yes, and so like if you are like person containing person, like well, you are extra powerful. Yeah. And so that's that's really interesting. Um, And that same account discusses the relationship seen between menstruation and the moon. And Mm -hmm. the moon is described as the real husband of all womankind. um, Because when because when he shows up, Paheke happens. So it's this sort of sense of. um, It's sort of like a. A a more like global thing, like so how um, like. A woman being married to a man like that, that marriage is sort of ephemeral compared to the the marriage between like humanity and the moon. Um, All right. Which is interesting. It is. Like, no, it, I just. Yeah. Um, yeah like <laughs> it's just cool that someone could say that and make more sense than that guy talking about rainbow dragons. <laughs> I'm still mad. <laughs> so the moon Mincy's connection. My. My forthcoming (laughs) album um, is also big among the Maya, for whom the moon goddess, sometimes known as Lady Blood or Ischel, um, governs (laughs) menstruation and childbirth. And so I'm going to read now from Susan Milbreth's Star Gods of the Maya, Astronomy and Art, Folklore and Calendars. I hope there's already a a metal band called Lady Blood. Lady Blood. The moon goddess influences the female body as patroness of fertility, pregnancy, and childbirth. The Zotzil pray to the moon, the holy mother, for fertility, and they believe that a woman is most fertile at full moon. 
Sotso women note the lunar phase when they miss their period because they will give birth after nine lunar months. According to the Quiche, the feminine moon rules over birth. It gives women their menstrual cycle and stops the flow of blood during the nine lunations of pregnancy. Lunations. Um, lunations. Yes. I like that. Um, among the Quiche Maya, menstruation is, quote, the blood that stems from the moon, end quote. And the Itzai Maya say her moon lowered when a woman menstruates. Nice. Hmm. Um, the Zotso say the moon menstruates at the new moon. That's why she's... Okay. <laughs> she's away for a minute. Yeah. Um, and those of Chenalho say the moon and menstruation are related. The Maya word u means moon and menstruation. Ooh. Um, yeah. And really, I could talk about this all day, uh, but let's just stop there with just the littlest snippet. Um, some other time, again, I'll get into it, but for now, <laughs> let's let's move on. But I thought that that was fun and that it's not all just like. It's well, and then it's like both among Maya, I, I read that among like in Maya context and Maori context, the things that that when folks say like, oh, the women, like the women are too tapu when they're paheke. So like they got to keep them away and like, don't let, let them around. Oh, it's bad. Like that is. It's, um, it's a Western interpretation. Of it, that no, that that's, that's no, what like people who are doing and the same thing with, with the Maya, like the people who say this, who are in those communities, it mm -hmm. is a, um, an adulteration of the like traditional view by the mm. influence of Christianity. And so it's right. like, like colonial, um, like the colonial mindset. And so it's not, it's not that cause sometimes it's just misread by the like external white person observer. And then other times it's internalized, but it is the, um, so the idea of like uncleanliness or yeah that that is badness. new that that yeah. comes with and so there are things that um so for the maya that would be like the the arrival of like catholicism and so like how catholicism plays with more traditional modalities of thinking about the world hmm. yeah all right so that's that's interesting yeah that's a really cool I'm I'm glad that you worked that into this etiologies episode because it's not just sort of explaining things with gods or dragons sometimes it's just stuff that happens stuff that happens so um I wanted to bring up another mythological mainstay to kind of bring us back to <laughs> I guess Amber and I understood the assignment in different ways <laughs> but in terms of the more mythological end of things um because these things do appear in many cultures throughout the world and seem to be represented in the very early prehistoric record, and that's half-human monsters slash creatures. So half-human, half-other thing, usually animal. And so when I say the early prehistoric record, I mean earlier than you might be thinking. So this is um, a study that came out recently on a rock carving found in the Temara rock art site in central Iran. So this is a unique rock carving has been described as part man, part mantis. <laughs> rock carvings or petroglyphs of invertebrate animals are rare. So entomologists teamed up with archaeologists to try and identify the motif. They compared the carving with others around the world and with the local six legged creatures, meaning the mantis, <laughs> just any six legged creatures. <laughs> which its prehistoric artists could have encountered. And so the article does say prehistoric here, according to the publication of the image, is between 40,000 years and 4,000 years ago. So could be old, okay. could be really old. Yeah. <laughs> and we covered this on, I think, March's edition of Old News. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I rankled at that date range even then. So because it's quite the range. Moving on. The 14 centimeter carving was first spotted during surveys between 2017 and 2018, but could not be identified due to its unusual shape. The six limbs suggest an insect, while the triangular head with big eyes and the grasping forearms are unmistakably those of a praying mantid, a predatory insect that hunts and captures prey like flies, bees, and even small birds. An extension on its head even helps narrow the identification to a particular genus of mantids in this region, Empusa, 
Even more mysterious are the middle limbs, which end in loops or circles. The closest parallel to this in archaeology is the squatter man, a petroglyph figure found around the world depicting a person flanked by circles. Does that mean that he is squatter than something else or he is doing a squat? Either that or he's laid claim to some property that doesn't belong to him. Yeah, that's probably that. Probably that. While they could represent a person holding circular objects, an alternative hypothesis for those middle limbs holding circles is that the circles represent auroras caused by atmospheric plasma discharges, like St. Elmo's fire, basically. And so when is we it? did this in old news, Amber, you mentioned that, what language was that in, in Greek. Arabic? In Greek. In Greek. It's a Greek word. Mantis. Mantis is, is a seer or a, like a prophet, like a soothsayer. Mm-hmm. And in my Greek class, when we encountered that word in whatever we were reading, I think it was the I think we were reading the Odyssey at the time. Whoever oh, was, was reading if it was... would put yeah. their hands up <laughs> with like fingers pointing down to make to make the little <laughs> mantis arms, make little mantis arms. And so we yeah. they, they would be reading and they would just like slowly lift their hands up <laughs> and we'd all do it. And our teacher was like, this is absurd. <laughs> <laughs> because we were just so tickled by this this etymology. Squatter mantis. Squatter mantis. All right. Well, in this next story, there is definitely much less ambiguity. Oh, and <laughs> this comes from Indonesia and indirectly from the New York Times. In December 2017, Hamrilla, an archaeologist on an Indonesian government survey, was exploring a cave system in Sulawesi, a large island in central Indonesia. He noticed a tantalizing opening in the ceiling above him. A skilled spelunker, Hamrilla, who only uses one name, like many Indonesians, and share, climbed through the gap into an uncharted chamber. There, he laid eyes on a painting that is upending our understanding of prehistoric humans. I just assume it's... Oh, Mantis, I'm not going to throw my computer out the window. <laughs> it's not. I, I mean, I can't guarantee that there are no Mantises on it, but it's not. The dramatic panel of art, dating back at least 43,900 years, is the oldest pictorial record of storytelling and the earliest figurative artwork in the world, a group of scientists said in a paper published in Nature, although additional research will be needed to confirm the age of every character in the painting. So, at least part of it is 43,900 years old. Maybe not all of it. In the story told in the scene, eight figures approach wild pigs and anoas, and anoas are dwarf buffaloes native to Sulawesi. Anoa. For whoever, <laughs> anoa, that. <laughs> For whoever painted these figures, they represented much more than ordinary human hunters. One appears to have a large beak. I mean, maybe he had a big nose. While another has an appendage resembling a tail. Okay. Well, in the language of archaeology, these are therianthropes, or characters that embody a mix of human and animal characteristics. So given that these images are more than 40,000 years old, and usually when we see something preserved in art, like when we talked way, 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 way back about tattoos, right? And we talked about how tattooing shows up quite early in the record, but the fact that it shows up then means that it was probably done well earlier than that. Yeah. It's an encapsulation of an idea that has been around for much longer. So it's really intriguing that so long ago, the human-animal hybrid was an idea already kicking around. Like 40, almost 44,000 years ago is like there were, there were still Neanderthals around, not in Indonesia, but, but, you know, on the globe, just sort of to give a sense of what was happening yeah. in terms of human populations on the planet. It is very cool to think about an instance of human storytelling going back that far. And so just a, a quick sampling of other examples of these sort of part human, part animal creatures. We've got centaur, which is that constitutes like, like Cyclops. That is a, another species. There's the Minotaur, which is a specific guy product of is human mom and god dad in the shape of bull yes oh i don't know if it's a god was it not pacifay um pacifay yeah queen pacifay of crete because she no she was punished oh she gave birth to a monster she she that was her no her punishment was to get like thirsty for bulls oh so it was an actual it was a bull okay it was a bull it was not that's not how that works, but okay. Yeah, so he was um, Minos's stepson. Yes, right. Minos's son and then 
Daedalus. on Crete. Yes. And then Daedalus built the labyrinth in which to house the Minotaur, who was the son of Pasiphae and a bull. A majestic okay. bull. Sure. Maybe he had a cool personality, too. There's also mermaids. Ah, like in the excellent novel, The Pisces. Man, Amber spent a <laughs> long time telling me about that book, and I wish... You know that what? I was, don't even have to that read that. The book. longest, the longest escalator ride of your life, as I just told you, everything that happened in the novel. Yep, <laughs> the Pisces, because uh, you made the mistake of saying, "So, what'd you read on the way up here?" <laughs> yep, regrets. So we're just gonna skim right on by that. We've got <laughs> the fawn or satyr or goat man, some kind of goat man combo, pan, like the pan dude. Pan dude. Yep. Well, because there's a difference between fawns and satyrs. Fawns yeah. sort of are more happy-go-lucky and kind of silly, and satyrs are just horny little goatmen. Really bro-y, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you got the manticore, which is a combination of a lot of different animals, but has a man face and terrifying teeth. What? Uh, we got Medusa, who, again, is a the, the product of another god curse, so yeah. um, that's not her fault. She's, she's rad. Uh, and, you know, Thundercats. Those are the ones I could think mm, of. Also product of a curse. Yeah. Um, a curse there's, the 80s. So speaking of, this is another episode of the podcast that Anna and I don't record where I just tell her about terrible ads I've seen on Pinterest. Um, there's the Motar. This is so you can get your motorbike insured. And it's like, I'm a Motar. And I spent half motorcycle. so long staring at that being like, <laughs> no. What? <laughs> That's also not what it is. Like if it was a motar, it would be like a cow. Oh, it just makes me mad. <laughs> All right. Well, while we both collect ourselves and contain our rage, let's have another quick ad break and then uh, we'll wrap this up. Hey, fans of archaeology, head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop and click the link to our tea public store. You'll find some awesome designs that you can pick up on t-shirts, mugs, and more. From our Ask an Archaeologist series to the worst idea the Life in Ruins podcast ever had, slamming agriculture. I mean, seriously. Again, that's www.arcpodnet.com forward slash shop for some archaeo swag. Chris Webster here to tell you about one of our affiliates, Timular. That's T-I-M-E-U-L-A-R. Whether you work from home or can go to the office or even to the field, Timular is an app, and if you want it, a physical device that helps you track your time down to the minute. Have a hard time separating your work-life balance? Set a weekly goal for tracked work hours and stop when you hit that goal. It's right in the app. So support the APN and finally start accurately tracking your time by heading to arcpodnet.com forward slash Timular. That's arcpodnet.com forward slash Timular to get on track today. Hey, archaeology fans, Chris Webster here. That last ad and this one were just heard by over 4,000 fans of archaeology and history. Do you have something you'd like to sell them? From job postings to products and services, podcast advertising works. Through our unique hosting service, we can play your ad for a short window of time so your customers aren't hearing something that's old two years from now. We can also make your advertising budget go further because we charge by the download, not by the episode. So if you want 10,000 people to hear your ad, that's what you're going to get. Our system allows us to target countries and zip codes so you get exactly the audience you desire. If you'd like to hear more, contact our advertising manager, Madison, at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. She's super cool and waiting for your call with a media kit and some sweet, sweet metrics. So that's Madison at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Remember, podcast advertising works because you're listening to this literally right now. And thanks for not skipping. All right. Okay. We're back. All right. So, you know, we also got back on. <laughs> so this is we've done a lot of episodes in our show. So we're going to do out. a couple flashbacks here. <laughs> yeah. So this is like when we get locked in a closet and then we just think about this is the episode where we think about all the fun times we had. This it's the clip, clip show. show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so there's Giants. Eh. So you can go into that. That was back Oh, God, you know, four years ago, the beginning of this month, um, yeah. 
Oh. <laughs> Sorry, April Fool's episode. Um, yeah. Also, gigantism is an actual human condition. And so talking about like mythical versus actual human giants gets really complicated and weird and like fundamentally like dehumanizing. So right. So we don't we we're going to step away from that rather than need to do uh, that. dive into it. Yep. There's the uh, unicorns, which mm-hmm. they have one corn. Uh, and yep. this is a, a callback to the Indus Valley civilization. Uh-huh. Well, we're gonna, um, yeah, we're gonna go deeper into it though. Yeah, yeah, but but you can if you want to listen to that episode. Is that do. where I think that is maybe holds the world record for most seal impressions, I and by so. which I mean I actually make a noise of a seal. Yes, uh, in a single episode. So uh, treat I think yourself so. to that. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and, and I also share the story of the imminent archaeologist who definitely thinks that unicorns are real. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> a number of seals. Thank you. Seemingly depicting unicorns have been found from the Indus Valley civilization. And seals with such a design are thought to be a mark of high social rank. OK, Sure. Um, I mean, these have, uh, sure, sure, yeah, whatever. Sure, sure, sure. Um, sure. Chances are, people who have seals are doing okay because they have things to stamp. Mm-hmm. These have also been interpreted as representations of aurochs, which are a type of large wild cattle that formerly inhabited Europe, Asia, and North Africa, or derivatives of aurochs because the animal is always shown in profile, indicating there may have been another horn which is not seen in profile. <laughs> Thank so, you. Like this is this is you know see above for our mantis man who yep. Um, <laughs> incidentally, the Bible also describes an animal, the re'em, which some yep. versions translate as unicorn. Okay, by some versions, it's the the King James version that calls well, it a unicorn. But like King James English is the language that Jesus spoke. So, mm, forsooth. And everything he said was in red. (sighs) Yeah. So it was first identified in modern times with the aurochs by Johann Ulrich Durst, who discovered it based on the Akkadian cognate Rimu. In Akkadian, Rimu is boss primigenus. um, So an auroch. Yep. Same, same. It cow. (laughs) It it cow. Because, yep. Rem and Rimu, that 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 tracks out. for <laughs> yep. in European folklore, the unicorn is often depicted as a white horse-like or goat-like animal with a long horn and cloven hooves, and sometimes a goat's beard. Yeah, I, I, yeah. What? Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like this one. <laughs> I don't like that sound. Um, in the Middle Ages and Renaissance, it was commonly described as an extremely wild woodland creature. <laughs> Meaning like very shy of humans, not no, it like will, it wild will and out. Wreck. <laughs> wreck a hotel your room. Yeah. Um a symbol of purity and grace, which could only be captioned captioned. <laughs> <laughs> which could only be captured by a virgin. Mm. Well, mm. in the mm. encyclopedias. Its horn was said to have had the pa- had the power to render poisoned water potable and to heal sickness. In medieval and Renaissance times, the tusk of the narwhal was sometimes sold as unicorn horn. Yep, this is. I mean, it's an outright brag, honestly. But I got <laughs> Do the you chance have a unicorn to go, noise. <laughs> I think there's probably just horse noises, but I don't know that for sure. No, I got a chance to go see medieval unicorn tapestries it was a whole exhibit about the unicorn tapestries and along with it they had a narwhal tusk like a full bigger than me six foot tall narwhal tusk at the Cluny Museum in Paris and so the Cluny is it it was uh, Roman baths at one point but they are simply the ruins of the baths now and then the um, Cluny I I think it may have been a religious building like an abbey at some point but the building was built around the the ruins of the roman bath and now it's a museum and it's a beautiful museum and they had an exhibit on the unicorn tapestries and so there were these beautiful medieval tapestries if you like that sort of thing and um, it included uh, some information on narwhal tusks and a big old display with a narwhal tusk in it and they are super cool so amber i we're gonna diverge just a little bit because these are so cool that i wanted 
us both to learn about them and go, whoa. Okay. Um, because the narwhal tusk is a modified tooth, but it's way more than that. So so keep going and uh, prepare your mind. Okay. Um, so here's, I'm going to read from a study that came out earlier this year. D- this the year being 2020 CE. Yes. Um, <laughs> the study's lead author, Dr. Martin Nuiya from the Harvard School of Dental Medicine, told BBC Earth, quote, this tooth is almost like a piece of skin in the sense that it has all of these sensory nerve endings. Ah. <laughs> ah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so a narwhal tusk is, quote, essentially built inside out. <laughs> do, you, do you want me to keep reading? Or This is like Cronenberg. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. He assembled a team of international investigators. Yeah, i got to get to the bottom of that. Uh, to understand the function of the narwhal's unusual protuberance. It turns to out it's really so, cool, though. It's not gross. To do so, they captured several of the elusive animals and anchored them using a net anchored perpendicular to shore. Oh, this yep. is terrible. This is really... It gets it gets um, into tooth stuff for a minute, whole, but it turns it's really cool. I promise. It does involve the word pulp, and I'm sorry. Mm, the researchers found that the outer cementum layer of the tusk is porous. The inner dentin layer has microscopic tubes that channel toward the middle, and the pulp in the center has nerve endings that connect to the animal's brain. The structure makes the tusk sensitive to temperature and chemical differences in the environment. When the tusk was a exposed to different levels of salt in the surrounding water, for example, the researchers noticed a change in the narwhal's heart rate. Yeah. Probably like, probably like, what are they doing? <laughs> it's like, oh, salty. Ah, oh. These animals can basically taste the concentrations of chemicals in the water. Because of that, yep. researchers believe males may use the tusk to find food. They also appear to be able to find females that are ready to mate, and narwhals will rub their tusks against each other. Uh, researchers think this is a way of exchanging information about wherever each whale has been. Like, oh, how's water over in that neighborhood? Any hot lady whales? Bruh, hook me up. Yeah. Wild. Isn't that cool? <laughs> ah, isn't that so cool? Ah. Was, I'm really sorry it's an inside out tooth and I'm sorry ah. that it's a pulp, mm. but it was just such a cool thing, like a cool evolutionary thing that I wanted to put it in. No, that's very cool. Um, you know what else is cool? What else is cool? Unicorns are not found in Greek mythology, but rather in the <laughs> accounts of natural history. <laughs> yep. Uh, because Greek writers of natural history were convinced of the reality of unicorns, which they believed lived in India, a distant and fabulous realm for them. With six foot ants that the, mine, for, mine gold. for gold. The earliest description is from Sutesius, um, who was writing around 390 BCE, who in his book, Indica, well, Indica, on India, he described them as wild asses, fleet of foot, having a horn, a cubit and a half in length and colored white, red and black. The unicorn, tameable only by a virgin woman. We get it. Was well established in medieval lore by the time Marco Polo described them as, quote, scarcely smaller than elephants. They have the hair of a buffalo and feet like an elephant's. They have a single large black horn in the middle of the forehead. They have a head like a wild boar's. They spend their time by preference wallowing in mud and slime. They are very ugly brutes to look at. They are not at all such as we describe them when we relate that they let themselves be captured by virgins, but clean contrary to our notions. So uh, Marco Polo met a rhinoceros. <laughs> yep, he did. Because <laughs> it's the thing with one horn. And they were like, do you want to see the the one horn? And he was like, yeah. And then he, they showed and him a rhinoceros. Like, oh, come and he on. went, oh. But I really love the, the image of the demure medieval maiden waiting in the forest for a unicorn. And then just like, chomp, 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 comes the slimy rhinoceros. Oh, my God. To put his head in her lap. Aww. Yep. Clompy, 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 clomp. <laughs> I like rhinos. Um, now, also, um, I was just yes. um, in the before you go and say that's obs what was in the Indus Valley seals. Um, there are representations of rhinoceroi in Indus Valley seals and they and don't look like that. the unicorns. No, no. The unicorn looks much more like a sort of water buffalo Indian cow situation yeah it looks like a like a horsey indian cow 
It looks like a horsey bull. Yeah. Yeah. Horsey bull. Uh, but so, the, the rhinoceri look like rhinoceri. They do. It's, in it's, those I mean, to be honest, it's pretty hard to mistake a rhinoceros for anything but that. Unless it's a unicorn, I Unless guess. Unless you're Marco Polo. <laughs> <laughs> well, he'd never seen one before. So speaking of rhinos and also speaking of etiologies, for book club this week, I'm recommending Just So Stories by Rudyard Kipling, because this is a book full of stories written in the form of an etiology. So how the leopard got his spots or how the rhinoceros got his skin or how the elephant got his trunk. And these were stories that I loved when I was a kid. I still love them. They're written in a very sort of... The storytelling voice in them is, to me, it's very appealing. And if you get an illustrated version um, with, I think it's, I don't know if it's Kipling's original illustrations, but whoever did the illustrations of the original version, they are very pleasing to look at. So that's what we're recommending for book club. And it's appropriate for people of all ages. So there's that. And that's going to do it for us this week, an hour and 20 minutes in. We will be back in your ears soon with new content. But until then, you can find us on social media and on the Internet live on Saturday, May 2nd at 8 p.m. Eastern time, 5 p.m. Pacific time. Come hang out. You can find our social media and the directions for our Archeo Mad Libs game on Facebook, where we are at The Dirt Podcast on Twitter, where we're at Dirt Podcast and on Instagram where we are at the Dirt Pod. And so don't forget to check out that Madlib word list and submit your lists to the Dirt Podcast at gmail.com with the words Madlibs in the subject line. Yeah. And if you don't have any social media platforms, you can still find the Archeo Mad Libs list um, and all of that, including a full episode archive uh, days at, of listening yes days um at the dirtpod.com plus you can get yourself some nifty dirt merch or sponsor an episode or none of those things or none we of those just, things frankly we love that you listen and you can help us out by leaving reviews and stars on all of the podcast platforms that allow you to do those things yeah and tell people about us yeah tell your friends tell your mom yeah tell your dad tell your dog well, Amber, go tell your dog about our podcast. And uh, well, she knows. <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach.